Hello, and welcome to episode 64 of the History of Yugoslav Football podcast. Today, dreams are allowed. For much of the last four or five episodes, our focus has been squarely on Croatia, and the next episode after this or two will be also, as the war in Croatia slowly built for a couple of months before exploding into some of the most primal violence seen in Europe in the second half of the 20th century. But before then, we have to deal with their neighbour to the north, Slovenia. Arguably, Slovenia is the republic in which everything started. Slovenia had begun drifting away from Yugoslavia before Croatia caught up with them by electing Tuđman, and as for Kosovo, well, they were never going anywhere. The non-nationalist case for the end of Yugoslavia was a Slovenian one through the coalition of Demos, which moved into power Milan Kuchan and Josef Puchnik. In a way, they were the perfect alliance. Kuchan, the man whose communist credentials were impeccable but who had seen the writing on the wall for Yugoslavia, and whose words on the day of independence give the title to this episode, allied with Puchnik, an exile and a rebel who had become an icon to his generation. Both offered the other legitimacy where they needed it. Kushan, as an honest and impartial broker to those within Yugoslavia, Pushnik as someone with links to the West, specifically Germany, who could provide the energy and logic to push independence. Where Croatia had one firebrand in Tuđman in control, Slovenia had a lightning rod in Kushan to dissipate issues that came from the South right up until Slovenia held their independence referendum in December 1990. From that point, the policy from Belgrade and from the JNA would switch from mild indifference to Slovenia's manoeuvres to the active preparation for Slovenia to field wrath, as well as Croatia, and the Slovenian expectation that such revenge would happen. In practice, this meant that the JNA became centrally directed, something that we'd already seen prior to the independence referendum. But whereas the JNA implementation of this in Croatia was to disarm Croatia at all costs, Slovenia managed to actually resist this. This led to the revival of the MSNZ, which, for our UK, UK listeners, could be compared to something like the Home Guard or the Territorial Army, something that could form an alternative defence structure should the main one be knocked out of commission. So, while the JNA did take away their own military command procedures and infrastructures, the Slovenian government just shifted everyone across to the MSNZ without the JNA noticing what was going on. When they did eventually cotton onto it, it was too late, and Slovenia had their own small armed force ready to go whenever needed. As you can perhaps tell, the Slovenians prepped for war early with a new defence minister in our friend from the JBTZ trial, Janis Janza, Slovenia began to get ready. The plan, as it was, was relatively simple. Slovenia couldn't withstand an onslaught from the JNA, which at this point was something like the fourth uh, biggest military in Europe. But with Slovenia containing lots of mountains and valleys, what could happen was that Slovenia could fight an asymmetric campaign of slowing the JNA down at choke points through ambushes. To this end, they spent their money on lightweight missile systems and anti-tank systems so they could implement a hit-and-run approach. 
Come June 25th and Slovenia's Declaration of Independence, Slovenia were ready, particularly when Independence Day was moved to the 25th rather than the originally planned 26th, giving them some key extra hours where they could implement part one of their defence plan, controlling the key infrastructure of the nation. As it turned out, they could actually have waited a bit as the JNA weren't united on what to do. One section wanted to make an example of Slovenia, sending an overwhelming force. The other to simply sort of show the flag and hope Slovenia wilted while keeping plenty in reserve. And by plenty in reserve, we just mean plenty in Croatia. The latter party would win, and this would turn out to be a big tactical error from the JNA's perspective. On the 29th of June, 91, the JNA made their first move, shifting forces north from Rijeka to block the border between Slovenia and Italy. By this time, the Slovenian forces had already seized the airports and border posts with no fighting whatsoever. Slovenia, as we've mentioned before in the podcast, was broadly ethnically homogenous. So doing this was essentially just a case of changing uniforms, and that was it. Being able to do that also meant they could focus on defending, and as the JNA tried to move up, they swiftly found themselves in standoffs, meeting barricades along their way. The slow pro- progress on day one was replaced by a broader invasion of Slovenia on day two. JNA units took control of the borders to the north, and the JNA uh, informed the government that their occupation of Slovenia would be restricted to borders and the airport. At this point, with a shot not having been fired, Slovenia decided resistance was called for. At this point, helicopters were carrying JNA troops around the nation, and the army were warned that if that continued, Slovenia would shoot them down. The JNA, still in a mode that Slovenia would just kind of wilt as soon as they saw any real proper armed forces, ignored that warning. In the afternoon of the 27th of June, Slovenian forces shot down two helicopters, killing those inside. On the ground, they moved forces around JNA barracks and laid siege to them, set their ambushes, and just generally proved a nuisance. The 27th of June had been the first day of war proper, and while the JNA had managed to successfully take what they wanted, specifically the border and the airport, their forces were isolated, with barricades blocking any attempt to reinforce. Slovenia's riposte overnight and throughout the next day was that wherever commanders on the ground felt they had an advantage, just to go all-out attack. At Strahovec and Medvedec, JNA forces were met by barricades and fighting, having to call in air support to blow the barricades, killing the truck drivers who had blocked the road. At Novogorica, Slovenian forces destroyed two tanks and captured three more, with three JNA soldiers dead and over 100 captured. Similar happened at the border crossing at Holmec, while one of the besieged barracks at Pukovie was taken alongside a weapons depot, greatly increasing Slovenia's weapons supply. The JNA's response was limited to air attacks, but even these were troubled, killing four journalists at Ljubljana's airport. On the ground, the outlook was even worse for the JNA. Slovenian members of JNA units were simply walking out and crossing over, and with many of the units still isolated, Few had any actual idea or any communications as to what they were meant to do next. On the 29th, 
the EU moved for a ceasefire agreement, which both sides rejected. The JNA would then demand one, with Slovenia turning around and saying, okay, fine, as long as we stay independent. Which, for some reason, Yugoslavia obviously rejected. On the ground, the JNA surrendered at, uh, at the airport and at other border posts with an attack at Hivatini repulsed by Slovenia. The following day, the JNA collapse continued with over 400 surrendering at Dravograd and the border post at Jesnice, which controls the Karawanks tunnel under the Alps, which, in spite of the funny name, is the main route between Ljubljana and Austria, and that surrendered to Slovenia also. This momentum of fighting continued on the 1st of July, JNA units slowly surrendering, realising that support wasn't going their way, with bit by bit Slovenia controlling more and more territory. At this point, the JNA looked to change tack from their limited plan. The, that plan that had expected Slovenia to just have kind of fallen apart already, and wanted to move towards a full-scale invasion and violent subjugation of Slovenia. But this would be blocked by the politicians. And as such, the strategic miscalculation from the JNA at the start of the war that Slovenians just kind of wouldn't fight would never be corrected. And as such, the momentum of the war was already set. While there would continue to be some heavy fighting over the next couple of days, in particular in the Krakovo Forest and Vergana, as the JNA tried to reinforce us against confident Slovenian units, the JNA surrenders elsewhere only accelerated. And on the 3rd of July, a ceasefire was agreed with JNA forces peacefully leaving Slovenia for good over the next two days. On the 7th of July, Slovenia, Croatia and Yugoslavia signed the Brioni Agreement, which would confirm the end of the 10-day war and, as such, confirm Slovenian independence. In AIM, the Brioni Agreement also formalised Croatia's independence as the EU, who were the organisers of it all, secretly wanted Yugoslavia to fall apart. In reality, while Brioni preserved Slovenia, it meant the JNA could turn their entire attention on the situation in Croatia, or on worsening the situation in Croatia, depending on how you want to look at it. This was less an agreement between three parties and more one between two, Slovenia and Serbia. Serbia and Milosevic, who, as we've covered over the past few episodes, weren't really all that bothered about Slovenia in the first place, were happy to let them go as long as Slovenia were happy to accept that that might mean they wake up with Croatia turning into simply part of a greater Serbia. Where a fortnight prior, the two northern republics of Yugoslavia had been allies in bringing Yugoslavia itself to a close, Milosevic had succeeded in driving a wedge between them by giving Slovenia up completely and, importantly, allowing the JNA to shift their resources south. As we'll see in the next episode, that would swiftly result in an escalation of matters in Croatia. In total, 63 people died in the war, with around 330 wounded. It would be nothing compared to the bloodshed that would happen around Yugoslavia in the following years, and it would be perhaps the most clear-cut result of every conflict. Slovenia were media-savvy, and used that to build a David versus Goliath narrative even before the war began, which won them many friends around Europe. On top of that, Slovenia was prepared and committed, entirely unlike the JNA and 
crucially, the Serb representation in Yugoslavia's political hierarchy. The result was a resounding Slovenian victory against an apathetic political hierarchy and a very much unready JNA, with many already thinking about the war to come in Croatia. Slovenia were lucky, yes, in the sense that had any of the factors that ensured their win not been there, then the JNA would surely have turned Slovenia over rapidly, given that there was no way Slovenia could have withstood a full-on attack by the JNA. But that attack never came. And what came out of it was Europe's newest republic. With Slovenia now out of Yugoslavia, it meant that so was Slovenia's football clubs. Over the piece, Slovenia has been one of the republics with the least focus upon it because aside from Olympia, very few of their sides were ever actually really that good over the Yugoslav era. Only three clubs had ever appeared in the first league. NAFTA, who were only in the first edition, Maribor, who managed five seasons, and Olympia with 21 seasons. While the early 70s were probably the high watermark of Slovenian football in Yugoslavia, with both Maribor and Olympia in the first league, backed by the likes of Mura, Zelesnikar Maribor, Makata Ljubljana, and Rudar Trebovdje, along with star players in Branko Oblak and the recently departed Danilo Pobibodo in, in the national side, Performances had fallen away with the mid-80s, seeing a series of seasons with only one Slovenian side in the top two flights of Yugoslav football, usually, for that matter, the winners of the Republic League, the regional third tier the season prior. Come the final season of Slovene participation in the Yugoslav leagues, only Olympia in the top tier were in the top two flights, with Isla, Maribor and Copair in the third, which had been reformed a couple of seasons prior. In short, what Slovenia had to create a National League with wasn't a lot, particularly given that the first season of the Slovenian Liga would suffer from a problem we would see in some of the other republics. Specifically, they just tried to fit everyone they could into the league rather than having a proper system from the start. The result was a 21-team league, yes, an odd number, that contained only really one side that was actually any good in Olympia. The result of that is that, given it's customary for us to give a roundup of everyone who was actually in the first edition of a league, there's about to be a lot of introductions that can broadly fit into three categories in terms of their future relevance in an independent Slovenia. Teams it's really worth your while knowing about, teams who stayed around a bit, and teams who were quickly going to disappear from even a Slovenia-specific timeline. So. Without further ado, we'll deal with the last category first and start with Zivila Naklo, formerly Partizan Naklo, who hung around for the first four seasons post-independence, but eventually slid down the leagues before folding in 2010. Electroelement Zagorje were in primarily as rivals of a bigger club in Rudar Trebovje in the Zasavje derby. Speaking of Rudar, their relevance in the Slovenian leagues would last only one season post-independence, but they had managed Yugoslav second league appearances twice in the mid-70s. Both sides now play in Slovenia's fourth tier. Stekla wouldn't make it out of the decade, suffering multiple relegations before dissolving in 1999. Their successor club is the current second tier side NK Rugaska. NK Beltinci had bounced around between the 4th and 5th tiers in the Yugoslav setup and, 
While they hung around the top flight in two until 2000, they were wrecked financially and went out of business in 2006. Finally, for this little lot, are Yezero Medvode, who took the route of going to youth football only a few seasons ago and haven't come back into the senior ranks. The second group of relevance starts with Svoboda Ljubljana. Svoboda were a major side in the 70s under uh, the name of Mercato Ljubljana, named after the food company. During this period, they bounced between the Republic League and the Yugoslav Second League, but come independence would fall away quickly before following the Yezero route of turning into a youth team only in 2008 and a refounding of sorts the year after. Solvan were another Ljubljana club that remain around today, who hang in and around the top flight for the most of the 90s after a mid-decade merger with SET Vevce. Similarly to Trevovier, they had a couple of second league appearances also in the 60s and 80s. The final Ljubljana one club before the one we all know about are NK Ljubljana. The Modro Bailey of NK Ljubljana would go by a few names. They were originally formed in 1909 as SK Hermes before becoming Zelesnikar Hermes in the 20s and then Zelesnikar Ljubljana after World War II and for the following 25 years would essentially be Ljubljana's second club, with regular second league appearances until falling out and staying out of the higher reaches of the Yugoslav hierarchy after 1972. Come independence, they would rename as Eurospecta Ljubljana for a season, before becoming Cosmos Ljubljana after a year, and then eventually Viata and Vector Ljubljana. They would yo-yo between the top and second tier in Slovenia before eventually going bust in 2005. They would revive it as FC Ljubljana, but that would go bust too, leaving the heritage of the club to completely dead in 2011. Outside of Ljubljana, we have NK Izola. Izola will be gotten to in a little bit more depth in the next time we visit Slovenia, but it's worth noting that their high point had been in the 30s and 40s as Ampelea Isola, a club in Serie C of the Italian leagues, a period where the club would produce players that would end up as Italian nationals and as part of the Torino side that perished at Superga. They had managed their way into the second league just before independence, with a lot driven by a popular local rivalry with Coper. They will have a bit of success early in Slovenia, but again, we'll come back to them in a bit. Similarly to Isla, Primoje are going to have a bit to play in the 90s. While they had a little history prior to World War II, their best successes were in the mid-70s, when they often challenged for promotion to the second league. Finally, for this section, the Pesciani of Decani, who won't last long in the top flight, but are notable for the why of that, and, as you'll tell, uh, they're actually kind of notable for the fact that the club's still around. The final bunch of clubs are those who will be around the top end of Slovenian football for a long time in one form or another. I really have to stress that one form or another point. Olympia were of course the most prominent pre-independence club. Formed in 1945 as Enotnost, then Odred and then Triglav before settling on Olympia come 1961. In theory, Olympia could claim history back to 1911 in SK Ljubljana, given that 
on the formation of Enupnost, many SK players joined the new club based out of the Bezegrad Stadium, a theatre of football we covered at length in our Slovenia Stadium Guide back in 2020. Olympia's golden era, as it were, was between 1966 and 1984, with first league membership a permanent feature, even if Olympia were only in the top 10 five times in that period, never actually getting higher than seventh. Their final game in the Yugoslav leagues would be against Dinamo on the final day of the 1990-91 season, but by that point, Olympia were a weak side, having fallen down the leagues, risen back up again, and seen plenty of players depart as independence came upon them. Perhaps surprisingly, given that they were the nation's largest club by a distance at this point, Olympia were actually holdouts to the Liga. While the Croatian clubs ditched the Yugoslav leagues as quickly as they could, Olympia didn't, only deciding to join the Slovenian league six days prior to the opening day. And even then, they didn't officially resign their place in the Yugoslav First League until after the season. At this point, they only formally paused their membership of the league for a season. Olympia also serve as our best sign as a great barometer of the interest in the new league. Attendances would go from 7,400 per game in the final Yugoslav First League season of 1991 to 1,100 in this first Slovenian Pirvaliga season. This, that single statistic perhaps tells you why there's so much fluctuation in the fortunes of Slovenian sides going forward in these first few seasons. Their, Olympia's eternal rivals Maribor have had a few cameos in our main timeline since their foundation in the wake of the forced dissolution of Branik Maribor after the Karlovac poisoning affair. Their first decade saw a rise to the first league and the beginnings of a rivalry with Olympia as, more than anything, their first game in the league against each other was the first time two Slovenian sides had faced each other in the top flight. The next 20 years would see the club relegated, caught match-fixing and generally yo-yoing between the second tier and the Republic League before independence would change their fortunes in the long run. Aside from their Vecni derby against Olympia, Maribor also have the Severojodny derby against another side to know about, Mura, or in this case, NK Mura, because we're going to have cause to know of a few. Mura, who, uh, based out of the northeastern city of Muska began in 1924 with a game against Maribor and had been in the Republic League for much of their existence. And I'm just going to say, it is important to recognise at this point. This Mura are not the same Mura that are in uh, the Europa Conference League as things stand. Um, as we progress through the a Slovenia timeline, I'd say, as I indicated earlier, we're going to have cause to know more than one or two Muras. Selye were formed in 1919, going through the Yugoslav era as Kladivar Selye, or, or the blacksmiths spending most of their time in the third tier with two seasons in the second league. They would start the season as Kladivar, but would change name mid-season to, in this first Piva League season, to Publicum, before they would become Cellier, as they're known now, in 2007. Gorica would have success at their start as Zelietnikar Nova Gorica, based in St. Peter, 
getting into the second league in the 1950s for a short time before settling into becoming a middling Republic League team as NK Vozila, but actually based in Novogorica now. Until the successful last couple of seasons prior to independence as SAOP Gorica. Copain began in 1920 as an Italian club in Sicolo Sportivo Capodistriano, only becoming Copain in 1955 from the merger of Aurora Copain and Medusa Copain. Uh, a real merger of goddesses and uh, mythical figures there. From there, they were consistently one of the better Slovenian sides, with the best success being in the run-up to independence, winning the Republic tier in 85 and 88. Our final two sides would be Domzal and Rudar Valenje. Domzal began in 1920 as SK Disc, split into Disc and Domzal in 1931, then re-emerged as Domzal in 1938 after a re-merger, uh, but had been one of the smaller sides brought into the Piva Liga this season as Lech Domzal until things reached their golden age come the 21st century. Rudar Valenje are a post-World War II construct, uh, probably as the name Rudar would suggest, uh, and had five years in the second league at the turn of the 80s and would enter the Piva Liga as the winners of the final Republic League season. And for now, that's where we're going to leave Slovenia until after we get to the end of the wars elsewhere. As you can tell, they got themselves organised quickly. Well, perhaps given it was 21 sides of Organised isn't the right word. They got themselves together quickly, not just into a league, but into a nation. Within a year, everyone who was anyone who had recognised them as an independent state, including the full EEC, or EU, as we really know it now, the USA and the UN. No country would leave Yugoslavia and enter a semblance of normality as quickly as Slovenia. But then, no part of Yugoslavia had been organised for so long in a coordinated effort to get out of Yugoslavia as Slovenia had been. Their experience would be very different from that of many others. Because next time on the History of Yugoslav Football Podcast, with Slovenia out, the sides of war became quite simply Yugoslavia versus Croatia. So yes, Slovenia is gone um, <laughs> from Yugoslavia now. Gone, 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 gone. Um, so as indicated, so what we're going to do is just work our way through the war so, um, before jumping back a few years um, to pick up Slovenian football and um, other regions of football as we'll sort of learn going through the next few episodes. Um, the Croatian war arc, um, as it were, is going to be a two-episode one. Um, purely just I'm in the middle of writing the first part of it now, and um, it's really long. Um, so it is getting split into two, um, just for um, your sanity, really, uh, as much as anything. Um, so yes, um, if you... Uh, as always, if you would like to leave us a review on your favoured podcasting service, please do. I am you know, most uh, delighted that as things stand, um, we are everything five stars on uh, Apple. Um, and I'm, yeah, 
I'm sure, you know, why why wouldn't it be that on every other service? I I can't think of a good reason. Um, <laughs> if you would like to uh, share this on social media, if you do have someone you think would enjoy this, please do. Um, sharing is caring. If you would like to ask me any uh, weird random questions on social media, you can get me on Twitter at, at HYFPRW. Um, I will mainly at the moment be watching uh, the, ch the Conference League campaign of NS Mura. Um, <laughs> as unsuccessful as it's probably going to be. Um, so it leaves me only to say thank you very much as always uh, for listening. I will catch you next time.